you know, we have said something true about you because it has been revealed to us by God himself through his son. And it's a, it's a very powerful and profound truth that is going to be hard for you to handle, but for the grace of God. Welcome to the Stand Firm Podcast. I'm Nick Lannon of Grace Anglican Church in Louisville, Kentucky, and I'm here today with J.D. Koch of Christ Church Anglican in Mount Pleasant, South Carolina. Matt Kennedy is off on vacation this week. How are you doing, J.D.? Doing great, Nick. Thanks. How's the transition to Hilton Head progressing? I understand BlackRock has already purchased your home. <laughs> That's right. No, they were one of the few that uh, it hadn't they hadn't bought yet. But um, no, we're we're moving right along. This is my last Sunday. Uh, it'll be um, emotional, I'm sure. It's been a wonderful three and a half years at Christchurch Anglican. Uh, so I'm getting to preach. Um, I may play with the band one last time, get the congas back out. Nice, and, um, nice. That's right. Me and uh, I was, I consider myself sort of the Anglican version of Phil Collins as the, um, <laughs> the vocal uh, drummer, but um, no, it's, and then we're going to um, uh, spend a little time with my family, Liza's family. I have a little bit of vacation downtime in July, early July. And then, uh close on houses and resurface beginning august 1st at hilton head and then greg kranz is retiring officially labor day and then um we often run in so there we go it's exciting exciting yeah, times man. very cool yeah, well you and liza and the kids all do continue to be in our prayers as you make this transition well thank you well um as you know we are continuing to have to endure pride month um, and we thought that we would talk this week about telling the truth. Obviously, truth-telling is a Christian virtue. We're enjoined in the Ten Commandments not to bear false witness. And Jesus says that if we abide in his word, we will be his disciples and that we will know the truth, which will set us free. He also says, in fact, that he himself is the truth. Now, of course, telling the truth isn't always simple, even if it is virtuous. Pontius Pilate, questioning Jesus, asked him what the truth even was. Someone sent me this great Jordan Peterson quote uh, recently about truth telling. He says, quote, there isn't anything more rewarding than trying to do things right. All other forms of reward pale by comparison. They're not even in the same conceptual universe. And there's nothing more adventurous than telling the truth. You have no idea what will happen to you if you tell the truth. So if you're looking for an adventure, boy, that's an adventure. Bucko. Did he not say bucko? He end? didn't. Not in, <laughs> not in the clip that I saw. Nah, I don't believe it. So as Christians, then we believe that we are called to this adventure to be truth tellers. But but why? Why is it that God demands a commitment to the truth? Well, uh, well, God in Himself, you know, uh, who's who cannot lie is not lie is truth. You know, I mean, as opposed to Satan, the father of lies. I mean, I think there's a call to. Well, to call a thing what it is, is to be right. to, to be disingenuous or to lie, to somehow obfuscate, is to not uh, cohere, as it were, with reality. And God has called us to be open in the light, um, transparent and honest. And that's um, all an aspect of truth telling. I thought it was interesting that you went right to that phrase to call a thing what it is, because when, when we were talking about doing this topic, the first thing I thought about was that sentence of Martin Luther's in the Heidelberg disputation when he was called on to explain this, you know, quote unquote, new theology. And a big center point of that is the, he keeps returning to throughout it is to call a thing what it is. And there's a sense in which 
life hinges on this idea that that when when we cease calling a thing what it is, we end up with things like Pride Month and everything that it right. represents, right. which is a complete reversal of anything that actually makes sense of the world. That's right. Well, that's why, I mean, particularly with respect to Luther, he's talking about the diagnostic reality of the law, you know, and this is one of the one of the classic places where Christians in particular are called or are, are often fall prey to the sentimental idea that somehow maybe telling something, calling something like it either should be or it might be or you would like it to be as opposed to what it is, is in fact, quote unquote, pastoral, because um, the law is it in its diagnostic function is um, uh, takes no prisoners. You know, there's no sentimentality in the law. It is a straightforward diagnosis uh, demand, in fact, for holiness, righteousness, um, and uh, otherwise um, purity of heart, mind, soul, and of, of strength. And so, therefore, in a sinful world, it brings people up silent and um, in short, and causes them to be silent under its it's just uh, it's it's uh, judgment and and would be condemnation, but for Christ. And that's how it, in particular Luther was uh, coming to see the law uh, in its diagnostic and its accusatory function was to um, not pretend that somehow the law be holy as your heavenly father is, you know, be perfect. Uh, therefore, as your heavenly father is perfect in Matthew five um, or the uh, even there's just the commands of the Ten Commandments themselves that were were not to be, um, we were not to pretend to sort of uh, be uh, untruthful with respect to the diagnostic that they are in fact bringing us short, but in fact confess that uh, as the law, and then in distinction to the gospel receive um, the the forgiveness promised through Christ of the just condemnation of the law. So that's how the this the the church was devolving into. Um, you know, sort of a, a machine, a casuistic machine to call the thing what it isn't, you know, like you're not really as, as much of a sinner as the Bible, as the law would reveal. You're not really in need of as much grace as the cross would uh, attest to. You're not really in need of as much saving as Jesus came um, to show you, you did, uh, you needed. And Just a few variety- coins in the coffer. That's right. Coins in the coffer here, you know, a mass here and there, you know, maybe a pilgrimage if you're a really particularly terrible person. But let's not pretend that you need to be that worried about it as long as you keep uh, stick with the program. You know, and of course, you had Luther, who, uh, contrary to like Roland Bainton's um, really, um, I mean, it's a fine biography as far as it goes. But sadly, that's almost the extent to which many people have read any um, actual biographies of Luther. But, you know, he had paints this picture of Luther as this um sort of super scrupulous, um, you know, sort of, I, I get the picture of like a, you know, like a, a long tailed cat in a rocking chair factory or something, you know, um, I don't know why I have that. I have picture. no idea what that even means. You're going to have that to explain that one. He was just super skittish. You know, he was always like, he was <laughs> <Okay>. this super, <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know, That's some homespun tarnation That's right. right there. <laughs> That's it. Gosh, dog it. Um, but he, um, you know, Roland Bainton point, paints Luther as if this, as if he's this guy who is, um, I don't know, I have a picture in my head. I'm having trouble describing it in non-embarrassing uh, uh, terms Southern like long tail cats. That's right. <laughs> but you know the idea, like the person who would never break a rule. And if he did, somehow he was, um, you know, felt terrible about it and was always super nervous. And mm-hmm. it, it was like he painted him in this entirely psychological picture and what is actually the case if you read luther's writings in particular is that he was not really um uh known for being particularly uh well that didn't describe him what did describe him someone who actually believed that god exists 
actually took the Sermon on the Mount um, seriously and the demands of the law and was genuinely afraid that perhaps uh, the righteousness that the, pro- the church had promised was not sufficient for his salvation. And so he was, um, he was terrified because he actually um, believed in God and believed in judgment and heard the voice of the law. Now, um, that's truth telling right there. That's an honest assessment of oneself that you right, know, like if the, there is the spotlight is actually illuminating all the nooks and crannies. And that's right. you're the criminal running from the helicopter. It's a terror. That spotlight means your end. It's a terrifying right. thing. Properly. Right. And, if, and if you actually, you know, then on top of that, you put. Um, that he was ordained a priest, you know, which at the very least you would assume involves a certain um, ascension of the uh, responsibility ranks, right? And you have someone who famously, the first time he celebrates communion, you know, has a, his hands are shaking so badly, he, he drops the wine and spills, or spills the wine and drops the bread. Because here you had a man who understood that if there was something necessary in him to be worthy of salvation before the righteous demand of a holy God through revealed through his law, then he was in trouble no matter what. And if Jesus had come simply to um, give him a leg up, well, he needed a much more than a leg. And that's why he himself, Luther talks about the breakthrough he had was when he realized that Jesus was not in fact another Moses, not that Moses is not important, but that as John one says, um, you know, the law comes through Moses, but grace and truth come through Jesus Christ. Now the truth of the grace that Jesus brought was that you needed it, not partly, but fully. And that is where the rub of the law comes in, because when the law does its work and tells the truth, then it brings sinners to a place where they realize they need repentance and forgiveness and mercy, which um, is anathema uh, to, uh, well, to the uh, uh, self-ordained celebrations that uh, we see all around us, not the least of which during Pride Month, where we see, you know, like Christina Aguilera famously, who's like a, you know, I am beautiful no matter what they say. It's like, really? You know, words can't get me down. It's like, well, that seems like a lot of protestation for something that um, by your own definition mean nothing. And yet we had to sing a whole song about how um, you were beautiful no matter what they say. It's like, well, it seems like they might have uh, a little more sway in your life than than you would like otherwise. And they, it's just a stand in for, um, you know, the law writ writ large, which is ultimately the voice of God um, saying, you know, continuing to echo down through the ages to Adam and Eve, where are you? To Cain, what have you done? And to the world, um, there is no salvation found outside of anyone other than my son. That truth that undergirds, you know, that is part of our the residual part of our having been created in his image echoes down through even the most cold, unbelieving heart and provokes, as it were, a wrath and reaction until it is extinguished by the power of the gospel. And you can feel that anathema, the, the self-appointed, as you called them, priests of the current age who must insist on being their own righteousness and justification when, when, the truth is spoken out loud, it must be silenced, right? Which is why you have these situations like the very young adult targeted yet pornographic books that are being advocated for inclusion in middle school libraries. The images from them are not allowed to be shown on Instagram (laughs) or Or read out loud. Reading from them is like shut down at parent teacher conference meetings. So like we, we have to not actually shine that light. 
because then the light exposes and right. everything becomes clear, including my own shortfalls. That's right. Well, that, and that's why, that's why, you know, I never really, um, uh, well, let's see, the, the, the criticism that somehow Christians are self-righteous or holier than thou. I mean, that may be the case um, in some uh, non or nominally Christian setting. But it, is, it has been my experience 100%, this is 100% of the time, that people who are happy with and conversant, or are conversant with and happy to uh, proclaim Jesus as Lord, for people who are, understand, um, you know, the song, Nothing But the Blood of Jesus, you know, who sing, I need thee every hour, who, in other words, see Jesus not uh, as anything primarily other than a savior. He might be secondarily a no, number of other things, but primarily as their savior, and this is this cuts across denominations and cultures and um, and continents for that matter. Uh, I've never met anyone who would not protest who who resembles the remark that Christians are holier than thou or somehow extremely judgmental or selectively judgmental even in that matter. It's because these people have have heard the voice of the law, have have seen the truth about themselves, and have come to a place of um, of repentance. However imperfect this side of heaven, uh, which is why we do it, you know, weekly if not daily. Daily in some cases, but nevertheless, um, the problem is, it's like I heard the other day is that the, um, you know, the rejection of Christianity is not a function of its supposed contradictions, but it's because the actual uh, faith contradicts our understanding of ourselves. I mean, that's what happens is that we think um, because we are creatures of the dark, you know, that we're not as uh, needy, we're not as broken, we're not as sinful, we're not as wicked, we're not as um, lost as we actually are. And for someone to to proclaim that uh, initially at first glance sounds like the height of uh, hypocrisy or perhaps even judgmentalism, particularly if you know them also to be a sinner. But the difference between you and that person, if you're running from them, if they are in fact a Christian, is that they would never protest that they weren't sinners, but that they would they would in fact confess that they are sinners saved by grace. And that sin was revealed through the same painful truth-telling process of the law as it has been for, um, well, more than 2,000 years, but particularly in light of Jesus' death and resurrection for 2,000 plus years, where the initial diagnosis sounds... Um, like the um, the the judgment and the condemnation that is that uh, that people run from, which is why, of course, it's put in the mouths of people who are proclaiming it in light of the death and resurrection of Christ. And so, you know, we see ourselves. I mean, I get in this conversation all the time, and of course, we've talked about it before that that you can whisper this. You could be as winsome as you want. You can be as um, sweet and as as. Peter admonishes us in First Peter, you can be as gentle and as respectful as possible. But when you are, to use your analogy, have that spotlight, and that's what you are bringing as gently and as, um, as winsomely as possible to bear on the darkness. Uh, well, what did we hear John say? The people who lived in darkness preferred darkness. You know, Jesus said, because their, work, their works were wicked and um, people would not rather not be exposed um, until by God's miraculous intervention, they are not only exposed, but ultimately killed and raised to new life by yeah, faith. That's, um, that's the, well, and that's why, again, we can, get, we can keep going on this. I mean, that's why we baptize babies. I mean, that's at least part of the rationale theologically behind baptizing babies, because we tell them by the time that they can understand that we have told the truth about them at a very young age, that this is something that they had to be taught it is not something that because of sin in the world, we actually come to 
Uh, we come to experientially, but we don't put words to it. You know, we come to the sense very quickly that there's something wrong with the very least other people, if not us. And we Christian people uh, take it upon ourselves to begin the, as it were, education process. You know, the, the, our, our pedagogical techniques uh, uh, take place, uh, are, um, are, are honed well before your, your actual um, ability to understand them. And we point back to this saying, this is what we have said. You know, we have said something true about you because it has been revealed to us by God himself through his son. And it's a, it's a very powerful and profound truth that is going to be hard for you to handle, but for the grace of God, which again is what we uh, talk about, what we sing about, what we pray for, and what we experience um, in and through this thing he has called his own body. And that's what that's what we're doing. I mean, that's why, again, I talk about this in a pre-marriage council, you know, go, <laughs> I was reminded this, I watched, we used to watch The Bachelor all the time before it became a character of itself. Like the very first season in the real world, remember, that was actually cool with Puck, remember Puck and Pedro, um, whatever that guy's name was, like that was before people, people realized that now it's become a joke. But at any rate, you remember when the uh, Chris Harrison did the wedding of like one of the most recent ones. And it was this big thing. And of course they always write their own vows, you know, and what do you hear conspicuously absent in any self-written vows? Is anything having to do with death or sickness or um, bad times? Right. Uh, and this is why, again, in the wisdom of our church fathers and Anglicanism, which has been aped by many other denominations, we have these wonderful vows to say for better or worse, rich or poor, sickness and health till death do we part. This is my solemn vow. And we bring that in precisely because that's what's true. Like, this is what's true. We're bringing you into a a relationship that is not going to make you immune from or protect you from the realities, the what we say, the vicissitudes, the manifold changes of this world, says Cranmer. And yet it is intended by God's design and blessed by himself and his presence in the first wedding in Cana to, um, I mean, his first miracle, the way in Cana, to, it is intended to, to protect, uh, to, to hold you fast, to be part of your bulwark against the, the wind and waves of life, um, the lighthouse, you know, the, the lifeboat, whatever you want to use. And so, again, this is where Christians, um, again, and I'm sure it's done, I'm, I, I imagine, and I, I have done, the, I probably resemble this remark of having done it not only imperfectly, but incorrectly at times, trying to witness to the, the truth about who we are that God has revealed through his law and the hope that we have despite that truth in his gospel. And yet we endeavor to have our minds and hearts being brought into conformity with his word, as Paul says in Romans 12, 1, you know, that by the renewing of our mind, we will know what is good and perfect and true and beautiful and whatever the actual words are, but that's paraphrased. But at the very least, at the very least, we have this hope that um, we would be people who would who would confess the what the law has truthfully said about us, namely brought us up short and shown our need, and we would be those proverbial people who don't claim to have met that need, but to have simply point people towards the place where we have found it um, in Christ. And so I think that's that's what we do. And again, but I, that people run from the truth, run from the light, run from the diagnosis, consider, try to silence the messenger in all the various ways we should be unsurprised by as Christians, precisely because this is what they did to Jesus, what he promised that they would do to his disciples. And yet, despite the rejection of the world, um, his sheep continue to hear his voice. And so that's where we find ourselves today. I am loath to potentially reopen the 
Pandora's box of the winsomeness discourse. <laughs> However, I wanted to ask you about language because a couple of things have piqued my interest over the last little while. Um, I don't know if you are aware of a guy on Twitter named Chris Rufo. He exists obviously outside of Twitter, but but he he is wanting people to stop using the phrase drag queen because it sort of sounds too nice and wants to use the phrase uh, transgender stripper just because to him <laughs> it's a more going to say trans crossdresser yeah trans it's a more it's a more accurate descriptor of what's actually going on sort of in a sense being more honest with our language another one that has come into my head recently is the really wild way in which we refer to trying to help say a young girl understand that she is a girl that is referred to as conversion therapy and trying to help a young girl become a young boy is referred to as gender affirmation surgery. Mm. These two things are the exact inverse of what's actually happening in the language. And I'm wondering how important is an individual's commitment to telling the truth? And can we, can we offer any encouragement to someone who feels like, you know, we were just, um, reading Elijah last week in first Kings. And he says, I'm the only one out here. I'm the only one who is being faithful to you, Lord. And yet he did and continued. What encouragement can we offer to people who are hesitant to tell the truth? Cause it seems like the entire population of the world is lying and there can be such repercussions to telling the truth. Well, I mean, I think that's where you ideally derive comfort and strength from sort of shared witness of the church, you know, of, of the, the body of Christ down through the ages. I mean, we think of our Anglican tradition of scripture, tradition and reason, you know, we, we do have um, a relatively unbroken thread, generally speaking, on the major uh, confessions all the way down through the creeds, of course, um, but even to uh, some of the more contentious issues of the day, you know, with, with very few, particularly numerically exceptions to um, within the broader Christian Christendom, you know, including the Orthodox, Roman Catholic, and then Protestant, where there's, there's, there's broad consensus on <laughs> on, on that that the now infamous question what is a woman you know what is a, a man you know what is what is marriage um what are sins you know these things and so where we find ourselves in our particular context in the west in kind of post-christian neo-pagan world that we find ourselves um smack dab in the middle of you know it was we saw the 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 beginnings of when we were in high school and college and now we are um right in the middle of Corinth, it turns out, is in a place where we are uh, challenged, to put it mildly, uh, in simply professing the, the, what Jude says, faith once for all delivered to the saints. And yet the comfort and security that we, that we need is actually there, you know, in the history, in the confessions, in, the, um, in our Anglican church, the formularies and the, the various uh, people who around the world have been facing this for for uh, longer, uh, their entire adult lives in the people our age, you know, I think of places like um, we have missionary friends in northern Kenya and in, in Nigeria and places like this, you know, in Southeast Asia, places where it has been, uh, has always been this difficult. The repercussions have always been this dire. And yet um, here we find ourselves uh, in, a sim in a place where we are being um, you know, the very least uh, th th that our courage is being tested to a certain degree. 
And so the encouragement that I personally have found is one that there is a, um, there's a commonality that, that has united Christians in certain cultures uh, down through the ages that we're now finding some sympathy, sympathy with, you know, I mean, we used to go to mission places and be like nervous for two weeks and now we come back and, you know, everything's fine and jars of clay is on the radio. Well, um, that's not exactly the case anymore. Uh, but, you know, but beyond that, I think what we can be encouraged by is that that lies, particularly when they're at the level of uh, sort of fundamental questions of reality, you know, who we are, who is God, where do we come from, where are we going, that to live in and to perpetuate lies at that level has nothing, uh, can do nothing but destabilize and, as it were, uh, poison other aspects of your everyday existence. So this idea, and we've talked about this before, this idea that somehow it's it's not going to have repercussions if you uh, if you continue on a daily basis to to lie in public uh, to yourself and to others about something that you genuinely know is is not true or you don't believe is true. The ramifications of that is that you begin to lose your grip on reality as, as to the extent that you know it, because if you if you can be coerced into uh, line about something that fundamental, and then you begin to harden your conscience against it, and you begin to sort of get cold to the idea. Within, well, it's like we said before, you become a cynic, and a cynic, uh, you know, former idealist who becomes a cynic becomes an angry, angry person, and that's what we watch all around us. And so, I think the encouragement is twofold. I think we can. I've been encouraged by seeing the Bible simply vindicated and its uh, trustworthiness and veracity writ large across the diagnosis of the culture. You know, exactly what the Bible says was going to happen when people embrace unbelief, exchange the truth for a lie, as Paul says in Romans 1, is happening. And so um, we see the elevation of self over against the elevation of the true God. We see the the worship of, of sensuality and sexuality, which we which was uh, foretold, you know, uh, which has always been part of the uh, brokenness of the human world. And we see that just writ large. And so there's some encouragement in that respect that the, uh, you know, if the Bible was diagnosing a problem that we'd never seen, describing people that we can't see any echoes of and claiming to offer a solution to a problem, no one, uh, a question no one was asking, well, then I'd be very concerned. But it turns out the very thing it's describing is what we're witnessing. And so it's, it's very encouraging in that respect. And the second thing to be encouraged by, or at least, at least encouraged to to stand firm about is the fact that these are wicked and destructive lies that people are embracing that ultimately will have sort of no purpose other than to destroy the person who is making the lie. I mean, this is what the, you know, this is what um, uh, C.S. Lewis's uh, Screwtape Letters is so good about, is that, you know, the, the, the incredulity that the, de- the devil has to understand that God would have actually loved these creatures, because he talks about how what our purpose for these creatures is simply to have to devour them. And we look around and we see the, um, the ravages of these lies work its way out, of course, on the, the youngest and most impressionable people, as it always would be, the, most, the, the weakest of the, of, the, um, of the populace. And that's, that's not, a, that's not a, a, a flaw in the devil's program. That's a feature. A feature is to take the lie that we are happy to believe and um, use it to devour and destroy uh, the people, God's creatures, but most notably the weakest and the most um, vulnerable. And so we see, of course, children, both through abortion, as we've talked about before, but then now by extension through this, um, the ideological and really uh, spiritual unbelief, uh, uh, 
oppression or a rejection of God manifesting in a religion that has at its most public sacrifice are the, the minds, the hearts, the vulnerability, the innocence, and ultimately the lives of children. I mean, that's what we're watching, like children being forced to endure, you know, uh, what is it, uh, cross-dressing strippers, drag queens, children are being forced to uh, be sexualized at an earlier age than, than um, any civilization had ever thought appropriate, except for explicitly pagan ones. You know, children who are being um, mutilated, children who are being uh, brainwashed, children who are ultimately being killed before in the womb, all for the sake of maintaining a giant lie the heart of which is simply, as we see in Romans 1, the rejection of the creature over, or the rejection of the creator over the creature. Because if I'm God, then none of this matters. And the moment it starts to matter brings in a question um, whether I am, in fact, God, which means it can never matter. It can never start to matter. So if that means you want to make it manifest in a, you know, weird pornographic book for three-year-olds, a board book for three-year-olds, well, then I may not personally embrace that, but I'm not going to step in and say something about it because if that's wrong, then perhaps I'm wrong and that can't be wrong. So everything must be right. And it's a, you know, again, I have gotten conversely great comfort and in fact, redoubled in my own personal evangelism as a, I mean, uh, you know, I think most, I mean, Christians should be evangelists and I think many ministers should be evangelists, but I have personally been convicted and have and redoubled my efforts in um, encouraging people, praying specifically for people, being explicit about, um, you know, conversing with people, uh, Christian or non, but particularly in the church, to encourage and support and equip them to go out into the world and proclaim something of this, even if it's only, hey, you should come to church and hear what I heard last week, because what we're actually doing is being the voice and the hands and the feet of God, bringing to, to rescue people from the clutches of this, um, this frankly, demonic ideology that's devouring our, um, the, the weakest among us. I have a friend who has a friend, so it's a, a step removed from me. But right, was, nobody listening to this, right? Right, who is just beginning to dip their toes into the world of transgenderism and starting to not do anything physical, but start to identify by a name of the opposite gender. And I just, my encouragement, I suppose, is that now is the time to tell the truth. Now is the time to speak the truth in love, because I've been somebody who needed to be told the truth too. Not, uh, not about that issue in particular, but I know myself to be someone who doesn't like to be wrong. And I know that feeling of having that light shine on me and realizing right. that, oh, I'm, I'm actually wrong. I have no excuse here. I was just operating out of something that was completely false. I have nobody to blame but myself. My armpits start sweating, my heart drops, and all of a sudden I realize that I've been caught out. But after, you know, my armpits dried up and my heart started beating again, I realized that being on the right path is the better place to be. Amen. And that truth telling was really a blessing to me. Like the, the example that I know that you've used a bunch and we use all the time is that when you go to a physician, you want the diagnosis that's accurate because that's right. only then can you actually be healed of your malady. So my encouragement as somebody who needed to hear the truth about something is to tell the truth about something. Even if you're the only one 
because a moment of truth telling, I know this from experience can actually change a life That's right. and bring somebody to a uh, new realization, new faith, and indeed even salvation in Christ. Amen. Name. Yeah. Lies has really been helping me with this, like with emails and things like I'll, every now and then, you know, you can tell, well, I, I get nervous about writing emails. Like when I say something, you know, true about mm-hmm. it, you know, I mean, and she'll read them back sometimes. She'd be like, do you really mean this? You know, is it really like the, the, the best meal you've ever had you know, <laughs> or something? And I'm like, and I say, well, no, it's not the best meal. She's like, we well, shouldn't say that then, you know, and I'm, and it's, you know, it might seem like a small thing, but it's the type kind of discipline that I think we could, and I know I have fallen into, uh, in, into, you know, uh, I've fallen into those patterns where you, for the sake of, um, you know, what it really reveals is your, your indifference to the person to whom you're speaking, you know, because if you genuinely love someone, and of course you could say, well, this is the best meal I've ever had. And it's not like, you know, of course, what is it in Monty Python? That was blasphemy. It's like, I just said this meal was fit for Jehovah himself. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, and he was getting stoned, <laughs> but, um, you know, obviously I don't want to be live like that tightly, but, but, it is what I tell people all the time is that if you were caught in something that was genuinely, um, you know, threatening your life or, or taking you down a very dark path and somebody who purported to love you said nothing about it until you were well down the road, even though they genuinely believed it was going to hurt you and you, you couldn't trust them anymore. Why, why would you, why would you trust someone who, who purported to love you? And by loving you, they kept their mouth shut um, with things that, that you, um, that, you know, they generally, even if you thought they were wrong, you know, I mean, if, if I thought someone was, was wrong, um, I'd tell them that, or I'd try to deny it. But the way that the truth works is that even despite our protestations, uh, and this is where we can thank the Holy Spirit, you know, that leads you into all truth, that the Holy Spirit comes, as John, Jesus says in John 16, 17, to convict the world. And so part of the conviction is the fact that we can't stop getting annoyed and upset with that truth that you told me, even if I slam the door, hung up the phone, you know, move to another state. It's that that's how the, the softening process by the Holy Spirit of the stone human heart works is that we, the law continues to pummel, continues to accuse, continues to drive us to finally, by God's mercy, hear a preacher who gives us the absolution that is the only answer for the truth of the law, which is that um, the wages of sin is death and all have fallen short of the glory of God. And so, you know, I think and that's where, like with your friend, that's where parents, I mean, you know, I need the encouragement from other parents and other ministers to stand firm in the truth, you know, because I am often met with resistance, you know, to put it lightly. Um, I am grateful for people in my life, most, you know, not the least of which Liza, but also trusted friends and, and my own father, for that matter, you know, people who have been, the, who have the responsibility, whether I gave it to them or not, and have exercised it, thankfully, judiciously over the life, over my lifetime, but, but poignantly at times in ways that I am eternally grateful for, you know, letter here that was questioning a decision or a, or it's a stern talking to that was wondering about a pattern that was developing or a, or simply a question, you know, did, was that really the best meal you've ever eaten, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. have, um, have been profoundly influential in my life. And I think that's why coming back to the beginning of the conversation, the truth of the matter was revealed on the cross and in the resurrection for the sake of the world, which is as, you know, to borrow a phrase from Tim Keller, you know, that's often used, you know, whereas the cross, the, the, the gospel means, whereas 
I think he said something like we're as wicked and as, as, as sinful as more than we could ever imagine, but also as loved and as valued as we could ever hope, you know, something like that. And I think those are the two truths, the law and the gospel that have to be held, not in antagonism, but in distinction. And one cuts and one heals, one kills and one raises to new life. One accuses and one silences that accusation, but they work in tandem with, for a purpose because we are not, um, abstract people are very concretized creatures of God who have exchanged the truth of him for a lie until that lie is exposed by the truth, which is that our lives demand the cross, and yet Christ has taken it on himself for our sake. And that's, we'll just keep running that program, that play, as they say, um, and, and watch people um, react, recoil, um, and then ultimately repent. Um, through the administration of the gospel. Yep. Well, we're not going to have a nicer wrap up than that. So let's, uh, let's <laughs> thank our listeners. Right <laughs> bang, bang, bang. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you listener for listening to stand firm this week. If you want to keep the conversation going with us, you can be in touch. You can rate and review the podcast on iTunes or send us an email at mailbag at stand firm in faith.com or join the Anglicans for the Gospel Facebook group. Thank you to JD. We wish Matt safe travels. Uh, I'm Nick Lannon, and Lord willing, we'll be back next week. Until then, by the grace of God and Jesus Christ, we'll be standing firm. Mm-hmm.